Good Salute. Welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we'll be discussing this week. We're going to be finishing up our read-through of philosophical trends in the feminist movement. We have the last three sections to cover this week, one on socialist feminism, one on postmodernism and feminism, and then the conclusion. And just a quick reminder for those of you that may not know, I am having actual physical copies of the books produced. So if you want a copy for yourself or for a group you're working with for like a read-along type thing, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod, and we will work together to get those out to you for as close to zero dollars as possible. My original idea for this project was to just read through it in one fell swoop and release that almost as an audiobook. I'm still going to do that at the end of this, um, once we get this section out, so that way if you just want the book itself in audiobook format, you'll have that available to you. I'm going to be editing that together probably through today and tomorrow, so expect to see that in the coming week or two. Just a minor COVID-19 update because I'd be remiss if I didn't do so. I myself am in quarantine. Hopefully you are able to be in quarantine as well. Hopefully that's financially viable. It's not really for me, but I'm just trying to stay safe. Um, I've been feeling a little under the weather the last couple days, so I'm a little paranoid about having COVID at this point. Hopefully that's not the case. I think we're all kind of in that mindset at this point. So hopefully you're staying safe. I did see that the Senate finally passed a relief bill last night, so hopefully we'll be seeing some sort of financial relief in the near future. It just goes to show that when we have a mode of production like capitalism that has so many people barely getting by, living paycheck to paycheck, when we don't see a couple of those paychecks, things can just turn to shit almost overnight. So hopefully this will be a wake-up call. Hopefully that's a silver lining where, um, you know, more people start questioning capitalism as the dominant mode of production. Because we see not that the pandemic is a small thing, but we are really we're really seeing capitalism laid bare here and we're seeing what a precarious system it is at the end of the day. Moving away from the dreaded virus, let's just go ahead and do a quick recap of what we read last week in Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement. We covered chapters three and four on anarcha feminism and ecofeminism. As I've said previously, the author provides built-in critiques of these systems, so for sure go check that out if you want a full critique and kind of summation of these variations of feminist thought. But just a really brief overview. The issues with anarcho-feminism and eco-feminism are very similar to the issues we've seen with radical feminism and liberal feminism. There's definitely a trend here where these ideologies or these variations of feminist thought are generally espoused by white women in the West. So we're leaving out the question of most of the working women across the globe, especially women of color. Another critique we can level specifically at anarcho-feminist and to some degree eco-feminist is a critique we can level at anarchists in general. It's not my intention here to open that can of worms of communism versus anarchism, at least not in this recap. I have talked about that at length before. But anarchists are generally calling for horizontal power structures. They want no form of centralized power through organizing, which historically has led to zero successful revolutions, which is kind of an issue. They're generally calling for things like co-ops and small-scale changes, which while that may make you know a group of people in the West feel better about themselves and their lifestyle, that's again, if we're historical materialists looking at, at the history of revolutions, we've seen that has never been the answer to full-scale revolution, which is something we would need if we were to answer not only the women's question, but the question of exploitation in general. As it concerns eco-feminists, we have an issue of them being kind of myopic in their outlook. 
Well, I think it is absolutely vital that we do take the environmental question into account because the world is literally burning before us as we speak. I think it's something that needs to be part of an intersectional outlook, of course. So when we're focusing on just things like either identity politics or even something like just the environment, again, that is not going to be enough to get us to a revolution, to say the least. So let's go ahead and move into the final three sections of the book, which, as I said at the top of the show, covers socialist feminism, postmodernism and feminism, and there's a conclusion as well. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, death threats, or if you do want some physical copies of Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement for either yourself or a group you're working with, do hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod. And if you want to support the show at all, just go ahead and look for my show on Anchor.fm. There is a little support button there. Chapter 5, Socialist Feminism Socialist or Marxist women who were active in the New Left, anti-Vietnam War student movement in the 1960s, joined the women's liberation movement as it spontaneously emerged. Influenced by the feminist arguments raised within the movement, they raised questions about their own role within the broad democratic movement and the analysis on the women's question being put forward by the New Left, essentially a Trotskyite revisionist leftist trend critical of the Soviet Union and China, of which they were a part. Though they were critical of the socialists and communists for ignoring the women's question, unlike the radical feminist trend, they did not break with the socialist movement, but concentrated their efforts on combining Marxism with radical feminist ideas. There is a wide spectrum amongst them as well. Some feminists who were involved in serious study and political activity from the Marxist perspective also call themselves Marxist feminists to denote both their difference from socialist feminists and their seriousness about the women's question. Marxist feminists like Mary Rosa della Costa and others from a feminist group in Italy did a theoretical analysis of housework under capitalism. Della Costa argued in detail that through domestic work, women are reproducing the worker, a commodity. Hence, according to them, it was wrong to consider that only use values are created through domestic work. Domestic work also produces exchange values, the labor power. When the demand for wages for housework arose, Della Costa supported it as a tactical move to make society realize the value of housework. Though most did not agree with their conclusion that housework creates surplus value, they supported the demand for wages for housework, and their analysis created a great deal of discussion in feminist and Marxist circles around the world and led to a heightened awareness of how housework serves capital. Most socialist feminists were critical of the demand, but it was debated at length. Initially, the question of housework in the early 70s was an important part of their discussion, but by the 1980s, it became clear that a large proportion of women were working outside the house or for some part of their lives, they worked outside the house. By the early 1980s, 45% of the total workforce in the U.S. was female. Then their focus of study became the situation of women in the labor force in their countries. Socialist feminists have analyzed how women in the U.S. have been discriminated against in jobs and wages. The gender segregation in jobs, too, concentration of women in certain types of jobs, which are low wage, have been documented in detail by them. These studies have been useful to expose the patriarchal nature of capitalism. But for the purpose of this article, only the theoretical position regarding women's oppression and capitalism that they take will be considered by us. We will present the position put forward by Heidi Hartman, 
in a much circulated and debated article, The Unhappy Marriage of Marxism and Feminism Towards a More Progressive Union, to understand the basic socialist feminist position. According to Heidi Hartman, Marxism and feminism are two sets of systems of analysis which have been married, but the marriage is unhappy because only Marxism, with its analytic power to analyze capital, is dominating. But according to her, while Marxism provides an analysis of historical development and of capital, it has not analyzed the relations of men and women. She says that the relations between men and women are also determined by a system which is patriarchal, which feminists have analyzed. Both historical materialist analysis of Marxism and patriarchy, as a historical and social structure, are necessary to understand the development of Western capital society and the position of women within it, to understand how relations between men have been created and how patriarchy has shaped the course of capitalism. She is critical of Marxism on the women's question. She says that Marxism has dealt with the women's question only in relation to the economic system. She says women are viewed as workers, and Engels believed that the sexual division of labor would be destroyed if women came into production, and all aspects of women's lives are studied only in relation to how it perpetuates the capitalist system. Even the study on housework dealt with the relation of women to capital, but not to men. Though Marxists are aware of the sufferings of women, they have focused on private property and capital as the source of women's oppression. But according to her, Early Marxists failed to take into account the difference in men's and women's experience of capitalism and considered patriarchy a leftover from the earlier period. She says that capital and private property do not oppress women as women, hence their abolition will not end women's oppression. Engels and other Marxists do not analyze the labor of women in the family properly. Who benefits from her labor in the house, she asks, not only the capitalists, but men as well. A materialist approach ought not to have ignored this crucial point. It follows that men have a material interest in perpetuating women's subordination. Further, her analysis held that though Marxism helps us to understand the capitalist production structure, its occupational structure and its dominant ideology, along with its concepts like reserve army, wage labor, and class, they're gender blind because it makes no analysis about who will fill these empty places, that is, who will be the wage labor who will be the reserve army, etc., etc. For capitalism, anyone, irrespective of gender, race, and nationality, can fill these roles. This, they say, is where the women's question suffers. Some feminists have analyzed women's work using Marxist methodology, but adapting it. Juliette Mitchell, for example, analyzed women's work in the market, her work of reproduction, sexuality, and child-rearing. According to her, the work in the marketplace is production, the rest is ideological. For Mitchell, patriarchy operates in the realm of reproduction, sexuality, and child-rearing. She did a psychoanalytical study of how gender-based personalities are formed for men and women. According to Mitchell, quote, We are dealing with two autonomous R.A.S., the economic mode of capitalism and the ideological mode of patriarchy, unquote. Hartman disagrees with Mitchell because she views patriarchy only as ideological and does not give it a material base. According to her, the material base of patriarchy is men's control over women's labor power. They control it by denying access to women over society's productive resources, denying her a job with a living wage, etc., and restricting her sexuality. This control, according to her, operates not only within the family but also outside of the workplace. At home, she serves the husband, and at work, she serves the boss. 
Here it is important to note that Hartman makes no distinction between men of the ruling classes and other men. Hartman concluded that there is no pure patriarchy and no pure capitalism. Production and reproduction are combined in a whole society in the way it was organized and hence we have what she calls patriarchal capitalism. According to her, there is a strong partnership between patriarchy and capitalism. Marxism, she feels, underestimated the strength and flexibility of patriarchy and overestimated the strength of capital. Patriarchy has adapted and capital is flexible when it encounters early modes of production and it has adapted them to suit its needs for accumulation of capital. Women's role in the labor market, her work at home, is determined by the sexual division of labor and capitalism has utilized them to treat women as secondary workers and to divide the working class. Some other socialist feminists do not agree with Hartman's position that there are two autonomous systems operating. One, capitalism in the realm of production, and two, patriarchy in the realm of reproduction and ideology. They call this dual systems theory. Iris Young, for example, believes that Hartman's dual system makes patriarchy some kind of universal phenomenon, which is existing before capitalism, and in every known society makes it ahistorical and prone to cultural and racial bias. Iris Young and some of the other socialist feminists argue that there is only one system that is capitalist patriarchy. According to Young, the concept that can help to analyze this clearly is not class, because it is gender blind, but division of labor. She argues that the gender-based division of labor is central, fundamental to the structure of the relations of production. Among the recently more influential socialist feminists are Maria Mize, she also has developed into an eco-feminist, who focuses on the division of labor. Quote, the hierarchical division of labor between men and women and its dynamics for men are an integral part of dominant production relations, i.e. class relations of a particular epoch, in society and of the broader national and international divisions of labor." Unquote. According to her, a materialist explanation requires us to analyze the nature of women's and men's interaction with nature and through it build up their human or social nature. In this context, she is critical of angles for not considering this aspect. Femaleness and maleness are defined in each historical epoch differently. Thus, in earlier what she calls matristic societies, Women were significant for they were productive, they were active producers of life. Under capitalist conditions, this has changed and they are housewives, empty of all creative and productive qualities. Women as producers of children and milk, as gatherers and agriculturists, had a relation with nature which was different from that of men. Men related to nature through tools. Male supremacy came not from superior economic contribution, but from the fact that they invented destructive tools through which they controlled women, nature, and other men. Further, she adds that it was the pastoral economy in which patriarchal relations were established. Men learnt the role of the male in impregnation. Their monopoly over arms and this knowledge of the male role in reproduction led to changes in the division of labor. Women were no longer important as gatherers of food or as producers, but their role was breeding children. Thus, she concludes that we can attribute the symmetric division of labor between men and women to this predatory mode of production, or rather appropriation, which is based on male monopoly over means of coercion, i.e. arms and direct violence, by means of which permanent relations of exploitation and dominance between the sexes was created and maintained. 
To uphold this, the family, state, and religion have played an important part. Though Mai says that we should reject biological determinism, she herself veers towards it. Several of their proposals for social change, like those of radical feminists, are directed towards transformation of man-woman relations and the responsibility of rearing children. The central concern of socialist feminists, according to her, is reproductive freedom. This means that women should have control over whether to have children and when to have children. Reproductive freedom includes the right to safe birth control measures, the right to safe abortion, daycare centers, a decent wage that can look after children, medical care, and housing. It also includes freedom of sexual choice, that is the right to have children outside the socio-cultural norm that children can only be brought up in a family of a woman with a man. Women outside such arrangements should also be allowed to have and bring up children. And child rearing in the long run must be transformed from a woman's task to that of men and women. Women should not suffer due to childlessness or due to compulsory motherhood, but they recognize that to guarantee all the above, the wage structure of society must change, women's role must change, compulsory heterosexuality must end, and the care of children must become a collective enterprise, and all this is not possible within the capitalist system. The capitalist mode of production must be transformed, but not alone. Both, also modes of procreation, must be transformed together. Among later writers, an important contribution has come from Gerda Lerner, in her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, she goes into a detailed explanation of the origins of patriarchy. She argues that it is a historical process that is not one moment in history, due not to one cause, but a process that proceeded over 2,500 years from about 3100 BC to 600 BC. She states that Engels in his pioneering work made major contributions to our understanding of women's position in society and history. He defined the major theoretical questions for the next hundred years. He made propositions regarding the historicity of women's subordination, but he was unable to substantiate his propositions. From her study of ancient societies and states, she concludes that it was the appropriation of women's sexual and reproductive capacity by men that lies at the foundation of private property. It preceded private property. The first states, Mesopotamia and Egypt, were organized in the form of patriarchy. Ancient law codes institutionalized women's sexual subordination, men's control over the family, and slavery, and they were enforced with the power of the state. This was done through force, economic dependency of women, and class privileges to women of the upper classes. Through her study of Mesopotamia and other ancient states, she traces how ideas, symbols, and metaphors were developed through which patriarchal sex-gender relations were incorporated into Western civilization. Men learned how to dominate other societies by dominating their own women, but women continued to play an important role as priestesses, healers, etc., as seen in goddess worship, and it was only later that women's devaluation in religion also took place. Socialist feminists use terms like mechanical Marxist, traditional Marxist, to economistic Marxist as those who uphold the Marxist theory concentrating on study and analysis of the capitalist economy and politics and differentiate themselves from them. They are criticizing all Marxists for not considering the fight against women's oppression as the central aspect of the struggle against capitalism. According to them, organizing women such as feminist organizing projects, should be considered as socialist political work, and socialist political activity must have a feminist side to it. Socialist Feminist Strategy for Women's Liberation 
After tracing the history of the relationship between the left movement and the feminist movement in the U.S., a history where they have walked separately, Hartman strongly feels that the struggle against capitalism cannot be successful unless feminist issues are also taken up. She puts forward a strategy in which she says that the struggle for socialism must be in alliance with groups with different interests, such as women interests are different from general working class interests. And secondly, she says that women must not trust men to liberate them after revolution. Women must have their own 48 separate organizations and their own power base. Young too supports the formation of autonomous women's group, but thinks that there are no issues concerning women that do not involve an attack on capitalism as well. As far as her strategy is concerned, she means that there is no need for a vanguard party to make revolution successful, and that women's groups should be independent of the socialist organization. Jagger puts this clearly when she writes that, quote, the goal of socialist feminism is to overthrow the whole social order of what some call capitalist patriarchy, in which women suffer alienation in every aspect of their lives. The socialist feminist strategy is to support some mixed socialist organizations, but also form independent women's groups and ultimately an independent women's movement committed with equal dedication to the destruction of capitalism and the destruction of male dominance. The women's movement will join in coalitions with other revolutionary movements, but it will not give up its organizational independence." Unquote. They have taken up agitations and propaganda on issues that are anti-capitalist and against male domination. Since they identify the mode of reproduction, procreation, etc., as the basis for the oppression of women, they have included it in the Marxist concept of the base of society. So they believe that many of the issues being taken up, like the struggle against rape, sexual harassment, for free abortion, are both anti-capitalist and a challenge of male domination. They have supported the efforts of developing a women's culture, which encourages the collective spirit. They also support the efforts to build alternative institutions like healthcare facilities, and encourage community living or some form of midway arrangement. In this, they are close to radical feminists. But unlike radical feminists, whose aim is that these facilities should enable women to move away from the patriarchal white culture into their own haven, socialist feminists do not believe such a retreat is possible within the framework of capitalism. In short, socialist feminists see it as a means of organizing and helping women, while radical feminists see it as a goal of completely separating from men. Socialist feminists, like radical feminists, believe that the efforts to change the family structure, which is what they call the cornerstone of women's oppression, must start now. So they have been encouraging community living, or some sort of midway arrangements, where people try to overcome the gender division and work sharing, looking after children, and where lesbians and heterosexual people can live together. Though they are aware that this is only partial, and success cannot be achieved within a capitalist society, they believe it is important to make the effort. Radical feminists assert that such arrangements are, quote-unquote, living in revolution. That means that this act is revolution itself. Socialist feminists are aware that transformation will not come slowly, but that there will be periods of upheaval, and these are preparations. So this is their priority. Both radical feminists and socialist feminists have come under strong attack from black women for essentially ignoring the situation of black women and concentrating all their analysis on the situation of white, middle-class women and theorizing from it. For example, Joseph points out the condition of black slave women who were never considered feminine. In the fields and plantations, in labor and in punishment, they were treated equal to men. The black family could never stabilize under conditions of slavery, 
and black men were hardly in a condition to dominate their women, slaves that they were. Also later on, black women have had to work for their living, and many of them have been domestic servants in rich white houses. The harassment they face there, the long hours of work, make their experience very different from those of white women. Hence, they are not in agreement with the concepts of family being the source of oppression. For blacks, it was a source of resistance to racism. On dependence of women on men, black women can hardly be dependent on black men given the high rates of unemployment among them. And the reproduction role of women, they reproduced white labor and children through their domestic employment in white houses. Racism is an all-pervasive situation for them, and this brings them in alliance with black men rather than with white women. Then white women themselves have been involved in perpetuating racism, about which feminists should introspect, she argues. Initially, black women hardly participated in the feminist movement, though in the 1980s, slowly, a black feminist movement had developed which was trying to combine the struggle against male domination with the struggle against racism and capitalism. These and similar criticisms from women of other third world countries has given rise to a trend within feminism called global feminism. In this context, postmodernism also gained a following among feminists. Critique of Socialist Feminism Basically, if we see the main theoretical writings of socialist feminists, we can see that they are trying to combine Marxist theory with radical feminist theory, and their emphasis is on proving that women's oppression is the central and moving force in the struggle within society. The theoretical writings have been predominantly in Europe and the U.S., and they are focused on the situation in advanced capitalist society. All their analysis is related to capitalism in their countries. Even their understanding of Marxism is limited to the study of dialectics of a capitalist economy. There is a tendency to universalize the experience and structure of advanced capitalist countries to the whole world. For example, in South Asia and China, which have had a long feudal period, we see that women's oppression in that period was much more severe. The Maoist perspective on the women's question in India also identifies patriarchy as an institution that has been the cause of women's oppression throughout class society. But it does not identify it as a separate system with its own laws of motion. The understanding is that patriarchy takes different content and forms in different societies, depending on their level of development and the specific history and condition of that particular society. That it has been and is being used by the ruling classes to serve their interests. Hence, there is no separate enemy for patriarchy. The same ruling classes, whether imperialists, capitalists, feudals, and the state they control, are the enemies of women because they uphold and perpetuate the patriarchal family, gender discrimination, and the patriarchal ideology within that society. They get the support of ordinary men, undoubtedly, who imbibe the patriarchal ideas, which are the ideas of the ruling classes and oppress women. But the position of ordinary men and those of the ruling classes cannot be compared. Socialist feminists, by emphasizing reproduction, are underplaying the importance of the role of women in social production. The crucial question is that without women having control over the means of production and over the means of producing necessities and wealth, how can the subordination of women ever be ended? This is not only an economic question, but also a question of power, a political question. Though this can be considered in the context of the gender-based division of labor, in practice their emphasis is on the relations within the heterosexual family and on ideology of patriarchy. On the other hand, the Marxist perspective stresses women's role in social production and her withdrawal from playing a significant role in social production has been the basis for her subordination in class society. 
So we are concerned with how the division of labor, relations to the means of production and labor itself, in a particular society is organized to understand how the ruling classes exploited women and forced their subordination. Patriarchal norms and rules have helped to intensify the exploitation of women and reduce the value of their labor. Supporting the argument given by Firestone, socialist feminists are stressing on women's role in reproduction to build their entire argument. They take the following quotation of Engels, quote, According to the materialist conception, the determining factor in history is, in the final instance, the production and reproduction of immediate life. This, again, is a twofold character. On the one side, the production of the means of existence, of food, clothing, and shelter and tools necessary for that production. On the other side, the production of human beings themselves, the propagation of the species. The social organization under which the people of a particular epoch live is determined by both kinds of productions, unquote, from the origin of the family of private property and the state. On the basis of this quotation, they make the point that in their analysis and study, they only concentrated on production, ignoring reproduction altogether. Engels' quote gives the basic framework of a social formation. Historical materialism, our study of history, makes it clear that any one aspect cannot be isolated or even understood without taking the other into account. The fact is that throughout history, women have played an important role in social production, and to ignore this and to assert that women's role in the sphere of reproduction is the central aspect, and it should be the main focus, is in fact accepting the argument of the patriarchal ruling classes that women's social role in reproduction is most important and nothing else is. The socialist feminists also distort and render meaningless the concept of base and superstructure in their analysis. Firestone says that, and so do other socialist feminists like Hartman, reproduction is part of the base. It follows from this that all social relations connected with it must be considered as part of the base of the family, other man-woman relations, etc. If all the economic relations and reproductive relations are part of the base, the concept of base becomes so broad that it loses its meaning altogether and it cannot be an analytic tool as it is meant to be. Gender-based divisions of labor have been a useful tool to analyze the patriarchal bias in the economic structure of particular societies. But the socialist feminists who are putting forward the concept of gender division of labor as being more useful than private property are confusing the point historically and analytically. The first division of labor was between men and women, and it was due to natural or biological causes, the role of women in bearing children, but this did not mean inequality between them, the domination of one sex over another. Women's share in the survival of the group was very important. The food gathering they did, the discovery they made of growing and tending plants, the domestication of animals was essential for the survival and advance of the group. At the same time, further division of labor took place which was not sex-based. The invention of new tools, knowledge of domesticating animals, of pottery, of metalwork, of agriculture, all these and more contributed to making a more complex division of labor. All this has to be seen in the context of the overall society and its structure. The development of clan and kinship structures, of interaction and clashes with other groups, and of control over the means of production that were being developed. With the generation of surplus, with wars and the subjugation of other groups who could be made to labor, the process of withdrawal of women from social production appears to have begun. This led to the concentration of the means of production and the surplus in the hands of clan heads and tribe heads, begun which became manifest as male domination. 
Whether this control of the means of production remained communal in form, or whether it developed in the form of private property, whether by the class formation took place fully or not, is different in different societies. We have to study the particular facts of specific societies. Based on the information available in this time, Engels traced the process in Western Europe in ancient times. It is for us to trace this process in our respective societies. The full-fledged institutionalization of patriarchy could only come later, that is the defense of or the ideological justification for the withdrawal of women from social production and their role being limited to reproduction and monogamous relationships, could only come after the full development of the class society and the emergence of the state. Hence, the mere fact of gender division of labor does not explain the inequality. To assert that gender-based division of labor is the basis of women's oppression rather than class still begs the question. If we do not find some social material reasons for the inequality, we are forced into accepting the argument that men have an innate drive for power and domination. Such an argument is self-defeating because it means that there is no point in struggling for equality. It can never be realized. The task of bearing children by itself cannot be a reason for this inequality, for as we have said earlier, it was a role that was lauded and welcomed in primitive society. Other material reasons had to arise as the cause which the radical and socialist feminists are not probing. In the realm of ideology, socialist feminists have done detailed analysis exposing the patriarchal culture in their society, such as the myth of motherhood. But the one-sided emphasis by some of them, who focus only on ideological and psychological factors, makes them lose sight of the wider socio-economic structure on which this ideology and psychology is based. In organizational questions, the socialist feminists are trailing the radical feminists and anarcho-feminists. They have clearly placed their strategy, but this is not a strategy for socialist revolution. It is a completely reformist strategy because it does not address the question of how socialism can be brought about. If, as they believe, socialist or communist parties should not do it, then the women's groups should bring forth a strategy of how they will overthrow the male-monopolized bourgeoisie. They are restricting their practical activities to small group organizing, building alternative communities, general propaganda, and mobilizing around specific demands. This is a form of economistic practice. These activities in themselves are useful enough to organize people at the basic level, but they are not enough to overthrow capitalism and to take the process of women's liberation ahead. This entails a major organizing work involving confrontation with the state, its intelligence, and armed power. Socialist feminists have left this question aside, in a sense left it to the very revisionist and revolutionary parties whom they criticize. Hence, their entire orientation is reformist, to undertake limited organizing and propaganda within the present system. A large number of theoreticians of the radical feminist and socialist movement have been absorbed in high-paying, middle-class jobs, especially in the universities and colleges, and this is reflected in the elitism that has crept into their writing and their distance from the mass movement. It is also reflected in the realm of theory, one Marxist feminist states, quote, by the 1980s, however, many socialist and Marxist feminists working in or near universities and colleges not only had been thoroughly integrated into the professional middle class, but had also abandoned historical materialism's class analysis." Unquote. Chapter 6, Postmodernism and Feminism 
The criticism of feminists from non-white women led a section of feminists to move in the direction of multiculturalism and postmodernism. Taking off from the existentialist writer Simone de Beauvoir, they considered that women is the other, opposed to the dominant culture prevailing, such as Dalits, Adivatis, women, etc. Postmodernist feminists are glorifying the position of the other because it is supposed to give insights into the dominant culture of which she is not a part. Women can therefore be critical of the norms, values, and practices imposed on everyone by the dominant culture. They believe that studies should be oriented from the values of those who are being studied, the subalterns, who have been dominated. Postmodernism has been popular among academics. They believe that no fixed categories exist in the case of women. The self is fragmented by various identities, by sex, class, caste, ethnic community, and race. These various identities have a value in themselves. Thus, this becomes one form of cultural relativism. Hence, for example, in reality, no category of only woman exists. Woman can be one of the identities of the self, and there are others as well. There will be a Dalit woman, a Dalit woman prostitute, an upper caste woman, and such like. Since each identity has a value in itself, no significance is given to values towards which all can strive. Looked at in this way, there is no scope to find common ground for collective political activity. The concept woman helped to bring women together and act collectively. But this kind of identity politics divides more than it unites. The unity is on the most narrow basis. Postmodernists celebrate difference and identity, and they criticize Marxism for focusing on one totality, class. Further, postmodernism does not believe that language, Western languages at least, reflect reality. They believe that identities are constructed through discourse. Thus, in their understanding, language constructs reality. Therefore, many of them have focused on deconstruction of language. This effect leaves a person with nothing. There is no material reality about which we can be certain. This is a form of extreme subjectivism. Postmodernist feminists have focused on psychology and language. Postmodernism, in agreement with the famous French philosopher Foucault, are against what they call relations of power. But this concept of power is diffused and it is not clearly defined. Who wields the power? According to Foucault, it is only at the local level, so resistance to power can only be local. Is this not the basis of NGO functioning, which unites people against some local corrupt power and makes adjustments with the power above, the central and state governments? In effect, postmodernism is extremely divisive because it promotes fragmentation between people and gives relative importance to identities without any theoretical framework to understand the historical reasons for identity formation and to link the various identities together. So we can have a gathering of NGOs, like WSF, where everyone celebrates their identity. Women, prostitutes, gays, lesbians, tribals, Dalits, etc., etc. But there is no theory bringing them under an overall understanding, a common strategy. Each group will resist its own oppressors as it perceives them. With such an argument, logically, there can be no organization. At best, it can be spontaneous organization at the local level and temporary coalitions. To advocate organization according to their understanding means to reproduce power, hierarchy, and oppression. Essentially, they leave the individual to resist for himself or herself and are against consistent organized resistance and armed resistance. 
Carol Stable, a Marxist feminist, has put it well when she says, quote, anti-organizational bias is part and parcel of the postmodernist package. To organize any but the most provisional and spontaneous coalitions is, for postmodernist social theorists and feminists alike, to reproduce oppression, hierarchies, and forms of intractable dominance. The fact that capitalism is extremely organized makes little difference, because one resists against a multivalent, diffuse form of power. Nor, as Doreen pointed out over two decades ago, does it seem to matter that structuralistness produces its own forms of tyranny. Thus, in place of any organized politics, postmodernist social theory offers us variations on pluralism, individualism, individualized agency, and ultimately individualized solutions that have never and will never be capable of resolving structural problems." Unquote. It is not surprising that for the postmodernists, capitalism, imperialism, etc. do not mean anything more than one form of power. While postmodernism in its developed form may not be found in a semi-colonial society like India, many bourgeois feminists have been influenced by it. Their vehement criticism of revolutionary and revisionist organizations on the grounds of bureaucracy and hierarchy also reflect the influence of postmodernism in recent times. Conclusion We have presented in brief the main theoretical trends in the feminist movements as they have developed in the West in the contemporary period. While the debate with Marxism and within Marxism dominated the 1970s, in the 1980s, cultural feminism, with its separatist agenda and focused on cultural aspects of women's oppression, came to the fore. Issues of sexual choice and reproductive role of women came to dominate the debate and discussions in feminist circles. Many socialist feminists, too, have given significance to these questions, though not in the extreme form that cultural feminists have. Transformation of the heterosexual family became the main call of the bourgeois feminist movement and the more active sections among them tried to bring it into practice as well. Though many of them may have envisaged a change in the entire social system, in this way, in fact, it became a reformist approach which they have tried to theorize. Postmodernism made its influence felt in the 1990s, yet in the late 1990s, Marxism is again becoming an important theory within feminist analysis. This critical overview of the way the feminist movement, particularly the radical feminist and socialist feminist trends, theoretically analyzed women's oppression, the solutions they have offered and strategies they have evolved to take the movement forward, we can say that the flaws in their theory have led to advocating solutions which have taken the movement into a dead end. In spite of the tremendous interest generated by the movement and wide support from women who are seeking to understand their own dissatisfactions and problems, the movement could not develop into a consistent, broad-based movement, including not only the middle classes, but also women from the working class and ethnically oppressed sections. The main weaknesses in their theory and strategies were seeking roots of women's oppression in her reproductive role. Since women's role in reproduction is determined by biology, it is something that cannot be changed. Instead of determining the material and social causes for the origin of women's oppression, they focused on a biologically given factor, thereby falling into the trap of biological determinism. In relation, with her biological role focusing on the patriarchal nuclear family as the basic structure in society in which her oppression is rooted. Thus, their emphasis was on opposing the heterosexual family as the main basis of women's oppression. 
As a result, the wider socioeconomic structure in which the family exists and which shapes the family was ignored. Making the contradiction between men and women is the main contradiction. Concentrating their attention on changing the sex-gender system, the gender roles that men and women are trained to play, this meant concentrating on the cultural, psychological aspects of social life while ignoring the wider political and economic forces that gave rise to and defend patriarchal culture. Emphasizing the psychological slash personality differences between men and women as biological and advocating separatism for women. Overemphasis on sexual liberation for women, separate groups, separate live-in arrangements, and lesbianism. Essentially, this meant that this section of the women's movement confined itself to small groups and could not appeal to or mobilize the mass of women. Falling into the trap of imperialism and its promotion of pornography, sex tourism, etc., by emphasizing the need for liberating women from sexual repression, or in the name of equal opportunities supporting women's recruitment into the U.S. Army before the Iraq War of 2003. Organizational emphasis on opposition to hierarchy and domination and focus on small consciousness-raising groups and alternative activity, which is self-determined, opposing the mobilization and organizing of the large mass of oppressed women. Ignoring or being biased against the contributions made by the socialist movements and socialist revolutions in Russia and China, etc., in bringing about a change in the condition of large sections of women. How incorrect theoretical analysis and wrong strategies can affect a movement can be clearly seen in the case of the feminist movement. Not understanding women's oppression is linked to the wider exploitative socioeconomic and political structure, to imperialism, they have sought solutions within the imperialist system itself. These solutions have at best benefited a section of middle-class women, but left the vast mass of oppressed and exploited women far from liberation. The struggle for women's liberation cannot be successful in isolation from the struggle to overthrow the imperialist system itself.